Welcome to Electronically Yours with Martin Ware. Hi, it's Martin here. Electronically Yours, as always. Today's guest is... I mean, I didn't really know about him. I kind of heard about him. But uh, he turns out to be an all-time hero of mine. Uh, His name is David Z. David Z. Rifkin. He's a producer, an engineer, mixer, a writer. He's a huge part of being responsible for the Minneapolis sound, if such a thing exists. He worked for years with Prince at Paisley Park. He was part of Lip Sync and engineered and produced the magnificent Funky Town. He's an innovator in terms of drum machines and loops and samples. He worked on and engineered and came up with a lot of sounds for Prince's Kiss. He worked on the Purple Rain soundtrack and Under Cherry Moon. He worked with The Time, Sheila E, Joe Cocker, Good Lord, loads and loads of people. He's a great talent, and uh, I'm so thrilled to be interviewing him today. Here is David Z. First of all, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it because... um, Having done a significant amount of research on you and uh, and all your uh, incredible list of um, credits, I mean, it's such a pleasure to meet you. So thank you. Thanks. Sure, I'm glad to talk to you. I uh, I know a lot about you too. And I'll uh, give over no, through the years. I've uh, you know pay attention because I've been around as long. Oh well, nearly. I mean, when did you actually start? As an engineer, well, uh, I was a musician first. I was in a band in the '60s, and I, I got kidnapped into being an engineer. Um, I would say it's probably God, my, my years go by, and I don't remember, but uh, it's got to be 80, 82, maybe '83, and that's when you first met Prince, right? That was, yeah, that was a little later. A little later, right. Yeah. Okay. And uh, What am I talking about? No, it was, no, it was earlier. earlier than that, isn't it? Earlier, yeah. yes. Yeah. So that's why I say I can't remember years. Say, yeah. <laughs> I lived through the 60s, so you got to forgive me. Oh, yeah, good Lord. Um, I can imagine completely. Um, how were the 60s for you? <laughs> the 60s were great. I was in a... I was in a regional band that had semi, we had hits in the five state area and the Midwest of Minnesota and all them. I, you know, I was always around that area, Minnesota and the top five uh, upper Midwest. Wow. And so, so you were really at the, uh, I've seen a couple of other interviews with you, so I'm trying to avoid asking exactly the same questions, but um it's really for the podcast listeners. Um, and I know you were asked on another interview about how did you make the Minneapolis sound and everything? And I'm going, well, at very least you were there right at the start of it, I suppose, right? Uh, yeah, I did actually. I I was a writer for A&M. I moved to Hollywood in 68. And uh, in like 1973, I moved back to Minnesota. Um, I I didn't have a lot of success as a writer at that time, but I did learn 
some recording. I was in the studio with a lot of people in L.A. And when I moved back to Minnesota, I had to re- keep myself in music somehow. I was in a fa- I worked in a factory. Oh, and um, in order to do that, I I made a deal with a booking agent that uh, I could record a couple songs of each one of his bands and he could play them for club owners so they could see what they were getting. And in, in the Midwest of the United States, you could actually make a living playing in clubs. They paid yes. you and you could travel around. It wasn't like being in the big city where you had to pay to play. It doesn't. Right. It was there a, was a similar thing in um, my hometown in in Sheffield, where um, right, you, you, you you know the the big um, you know the kind of bread and butter stuff was actually working men's clubs, which yeah. I don't I don't know if there's an equivalent in the US, but um, essentially it was jobbing musicians and you know the, yeah the, I was a I along the way I became a friend of Joe Cocker and he was from Sheffield. That's and, right. He told me, uh, you know, basically, it's the same sort of get up. I mean, it was we were we were from remote areas. Yeah, yeah. And and and, and, and um, uh, yeah. I mean, he he grew up in singing in pubs, you know. And, and stuff. Yeah. But what so, a voice! What a character! Yeah, um, he was a character. Yeah, <laughs> he's a great guy. So, um. So how how did you get how did you originally I mean how did you get a job as a writer I know it may not have turned out but... uh, okay we'll go back a step I um, I was let's see how did I get a job as a writer I I grew up in bands I um, had written some songs and then I got a job as a promotion man for A and M Records in the Upper Midwest I I handled a you know radio station right and i had to service them product for AM and electra and uh a lot of the times there weren't that many records coming out back then but uh the good ones i'd put in a good pile and bad <laughs> ones i'd throw away so you were a plugger then really i was a plugger yes and i i guess that added to my song sense in which i i was always playing a game where i could spot a hit song coming from a mile oh. and I always loved that game with myself because I could I, I could always go hey I was right you know and that uh yeah I could see a song and what would make it a hit and it worked yeah I didn't have anything to do with that it was just a game but, yeah, um, but that's a valuable skill yes and it is a, it's what I've relied on my whole life but during that promotion gig the my boss uh, I said, well, I can write better songs than this. I don't want to push <laughs> these records. I mean, the good ones were good. I, I, and, but the other ones, I said, I could do better. He goes, well, then why don't you pack your car up and drive to L.A. and become a writer? And so I, I went, okay, I think I will. And I was very, you know, young and impressionable. And I did. I drove my car to L.A. and I... It was during the, it was during the fabulous '60s and on Sunset Strip it was happening. I mean, the whole place there weren't that many wow. people here really that knew each other, and um, there was a whole crowd of people that went between the Whiskey a Go Go and all these other clubs. And um, I hung out with people and 
publishers and uh, musicians. And I got friendly with the publisher and um, I thought he was a hairdresser. <laughs> he, he, he was always at Joe Cocker's house at Denny Cordell's house by the pool and he always had turquoise and everything and I went wow he's a fancy guy and uh, I started talking to him one night he, I, he said by the way what do you do I went I'm a writer and he goes well I'm a publisher why don't you come and see me tomorrow and quick as that I went and saw him and he signed me to AM Publishing um, and I had my first indication that I was good enough to do that and um, then I was signed there for four years and uh, I wrote a lot of songs I thought were good they're mostly R&B type songs right because that's where I grew up my bands always played old black music and right. English English you know black music the animals and Rolling Stones I mean they all were based on blues and that's right that's, that's right. where I was I was that's where my heart was so did you get any um hits away? well no the only the only real thing that I did was uh I mean I got one song on a Johnny Halliday I don't know if it was his first or second or third album and it turns out it, at the time I didn't think he was anybody. And um, yeah, yeah, he's big in, in France. But he turned into a big somebody. And um, I got one song on there, and I had to split the publishing with the guy who translated to French, which uh, was kind of a ripoff. But uh, I yeah. guess that's a skill in itself. Anyway, that, and I was writing. They wanted me to write songs for Three Dog Night. That was their big. Yeah, yeah. And I didn't write those kinds of songs. I was writing for Ruby Franklin, and I I partnered up with Billy Preston. I played on a bunch of his demos. Wow. Um, and um, that was cool. I got to play with uh, Mimi Farina and Tom Jantz. I was kind of all over the board. Um, and uh, anyway, I tried to write R&B, but they couldn't really place my songs as anybody at the time because they that wasn't their clientele right i i i'm lucky enough to have worked with billy preston actually um he was on a, a an album of cover versions i was doing and um he was uh such a gentleman and so lovely and we did a cover version of family affair you know cool. so, uh for another artist which was um Layla Hathaway right. um, and I said to him he had to be in the studio I was recording another cover version with him he had to be hanging out because he loved music and he just wanted to be there and it was an honor for me to have him in the studio and I said to him I had a an idea I said hey Billy um would you mind playing because I had a Rhodes in the studio I said would you play do me a favor and play Rhodes on the um on this cover version of Family Affair? He said, Yeah, sure. I played I played the Rhodes on the original. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't he was on, it wasn't credited. On Sly Stone, he wasn't. Yeah, no. But he played the original. So he, I'm there in the studio, I'm going, he's playing my Rhodes. He's playing the original parts from one of the greatest. R&B songs. Uh, oh my God! 
he was he was one of the greatest. I mean, I made good friends with him. We I played on his demos, and then he wanted me to play on this um our uh, Ashley Cleveland. What was the guy's name? Reverend Reverend Cleveland. I forgot Cleveland, his... not Cleveland Watkiss, no. No. No, it was that's his last name, Cleveland. Oh, Cleveland, right. But it was a gospel record, and I right. he wanted me. I'm I was the only white guy in the session. <laughs> it was very it was good. It was kind of confirming to me because I always wanted I mean I'm I'm came at music from a white guy wanting to play like a black person. Hey, me too. And, uh, I, I'm a soul I'm a soul guy. I used to go to in Sheffield and in the north of England they have a, a thing called Northern Soul, which is which was kind of rare uh rare records that that uh, DJs at the time would ship in numbers from the US that they'd find uh -huh. the cutouts you know in, in that what they called rare groove yeah it's kind of pre-rare groove actually and it became an enormous scene for dancing and actually amphetamine taking and but it was really a passion right and yeah. there it still lives to this day the northern soul thing so I grew up in that in that partially in that scene and my sisters used to listen to you know I had a huge motor it's kind of similar to what happened in Minneapolis I mean really I guess the the isolation of being so far away from a population center helped I guess because we were forced to create our own group thing and how big is Minneapolis well now it's uh, god I want to say three million right it, it wasn't that big back then yeah it's hard for people in Britain to kind of comprehend how far apart places are you know because it's uh, a long ways away it was yeah, honestly in the in the beginning when we were trying to uh sell the Prince tapes um no a and r guys would ever come up there because they thought we had buffalo in our backyard and they didn't want to we had nothing to do with culture they you know they were uh, very big city snoop snoopy and they uh, uh yeah snooty yeah yeah and, uh, and um so let's get back to um of course i'm an enormous prince fan i'm sorry i'm going all over the place no listen you asked me how i became an engineer yeah nobody no, nobody goes all over the place more than me in this podcast and that's what i kind of like about it good i keep going backwards and forwards on the timeline as well so i apologize I'll, um, say, I'll say a little uh, tell us how you became an engineer then and what, okay um, when yeah. I moved back to Minneapolis after my writing gigs at AM, I was really missing the music business because I was in Minneapolis again there was nothing going on and um I told you I made this deal with a booking agent we made tapes of his he had 50 bands we made tapes of and um so I commandeered this recording studio in North Minneapolis, which is in itself in the hood. And um, after about the 40th band, the engineer who owned the place said to me, I'm sick of doing this. Why don't you do it? <laughs> I, went, I don't know how to do this. I'm a musician. You know, I, and I'm a facilitator. I'm just bringing these people in for money. And he goes, well, you'll learn. You got enough. You've done this enough already. And uh, so he basically locked me in the room there. And uh, I had to read these books like Robert Runstein, Modern Recording Techniques. I had to 
find out what all these things did, compressor, compressing, volume knob. I was a musician. I really didn't know. So I made all kinds of mistakes and made some really shitty recordings. And uh, I finally developed a style of my own, I guess, because I had nobody to follow, nobody to copy. That's and a good point. The people yeah, there was nobody. Podcasts need to understand, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I slugged it out on my own, and whatever mistakes I made, I probably used a bunch of them. Damn. And that—that um, that to me is the real, the real deal. I mean, I'm not following a book. I'm not trying yeah. to copy anybody. I did read about how certain people did things, but I never knew, never followed them. I'm exactly the same as a producer. I I, um, I I just follow my instincts. I think that takes a lot of bravery, maybe stupidity when you're young as well, you know, but it worked for me, you know. Um, so how old were you when, when this, this was going on? Probably 23. Yeah, that's about the time when I kind of broke through creatively as well. Um, yeah. So your first gigs your first and when i say gigs i don't mean live gigs i mean your first um employment in the studios um when uh, what were they i mean were they well they were mainly uh we're talking minneapolis here so they were a lot of polka bands polka polka explain what that is for people well uh wisconsin and minneapolis have all it's populated with a lot of Scandinavian people. Right. right. And so there were a lot of polka bands and that was bigger up, up there. And um, they wanted to do records. I learned how to do accordion records. And uh, I mean, it was, it was practice for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of good things I learned, but you know, they certainly didn't apply to rock records. They were, <laughs> They were. I have well, the mic up an accordion, right? Yeah. Well, when I first put a harmonizer on an accordion, they freaked out because that wasn't really what was you were supposed <laughs> to do. <laughs> but a lot of polka records, a lot of country western records, and um, you know there were a lot of a lot of music like that. Very now, the, like I said, the place the the studio was in the hood, so I did have. A lot of black bands coming through because that was the neighborhood and um uh, the studio owner worked out this crooked deal where he financed the with the bank on the corner he'd finance the recordings and people could get them paid for and they wouldn't have to worry about it unless they had to pay the bank back and a lot of them never did so okay. it was you know that was, was a way of staying in business but um right anyway uh I uh, I was like my third year there. I I, I secured uh, a, a local radio station, FM station. We we did the what was called a broadcast every Friday, a KQRS broadcast, and so we had national groups come through because they were the radio station, and they would put on a show at the studio, and all these people would we'd have an audience, and so I got to work with some very good artists that are national artists that came right. through and like, so i i got like, to develop my skills out right like anybody we know what's that anybody, anybody we'd know oh yeah well at the time the reason amazing rhythm aces ben sidron 
Michael Franks, uh, Taj Mahal. Oh my God, I love Taj Mahal. Yeah, and so I got to record these great bands. Wow. Uh, you know, and I had to be on the spot because it was a live broadcast. So I had to have my shit together, you know, move things around in real time. And, you know, it was uh, it was a good education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Amazing. So when did you meet um, uh, Prince? When okay, you- well, that's the next thing is uh, after about three years there, I had a friend who is a, uh, a wealthy real estate dealer. Uh guy named uh, Archie Gibbons. He just died, unfortunately. But he was sponsoring this group of kids called Grand Central. And he brought That's, them in. Yeah. And it was Morris Day on the drums and Prince on the guitar and Andre Simone on bass. And they came in and did a demo, which Archie paid for. Uh, I don't remember any of the songs because they were way early in the career and uh, wasn't anything to really speak of, but that's how I met them. Um, and then a year later, uh, my a good friend of mine, Owen Hosney, took over the management of the guitar player, Prince. Right. He brought him to me. I was already at a different studio. And he said, do you want to do a demo with this guy? I think he's got something. And um, I listened like to his songs. I went, shit. And I was start, you know. I was very impressed because we were always looking for something. Minneapolis was uh, isolated. So we were always looking for something to break out. Everyone wanted to get out um, in Minneapolis and have a national hit. That was the big talk for years and years. There was, uh, you know, the musicians were all frustrated because people had to leave to, to have success. You couldn't do it in Minneapolis. I mean, Bob Dylan left. And uh, there was a bass player named Willie Weeks, who's still great. He played with Eric Clapton, and um, he's one of the best bass players in the world. He had to leave. He was in a local group. Um, And there were uh, many other examples of people having to leave town to find success. So we were trying to to, uh, find something there. And we tried, I, there, I did a whole album of um, what they now call Purple Snow. You can probably find it, but uh, wow, it's all these R&B groups in the Midwest doing right away, right before Prince. There were all these groups doing uh, R&B, trying to get out. And um, um, Why purple? It's always fascinated me. Well, they they went back after Prince named Purple, but uh, right. that's why they called it Purple Snow. It's before Purple Rain. Interesting. Well, so, what is the thing about purple? That's what I don't understand. Oh, that, that's a Prince thing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I suppose he took it from Purple Haze with Jimi Hendrix. Oh, right. I thought I'm, it might be because it's like an imperial color in history. You know, it's like kings and stuff. I don't question him. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe I'm overthinking it. Um, <laughs> so tell me your, I mean, you're a guitarist, of course, correct? I mean, you're that's your primary instrument, is that right? Yeah. Do you play keyboards as well? And uh, A little bit. I play what's needed is what I like right, to say. Right, I right. program the drums when it's needed. And... So 
I'm not a guitarist, I'm a keyboardist, but uh, I am of the opinion, and I just want to see what your, your thoughts are on this. I'm of the opinion that even if Prince had never been a great songwriter or performer, that he would have been world famous as a guitarist. Yeah. Do you agree? He knew, how to play, he knew how to play like that. I mean, he practiced every single day. This guy practiced every single day. And he that's all his, his life was, was music. He just practiced and practiced and practiced and practiced. And my brother was his drummer in the revolution. So they practiced. I mean, my brother started out as a a lazy drummer, basically. And right. uh, after a year of nonstop practice every single day, he got great. And that's practice makes perfect. That was what Prince believed in. And you no, know, he's a he he picked up that guitar and he could play, he could play anything, any instrument. I never saw him have to learn anything. I mean, he probably did it on his own, but I mean, and I know people kind of know all this stuff, but to hear it come from the horse's mouth of the man who actually kind of was there at the start, and 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 you know, I mean. So let's take an example. I mean, you you were the engineer on Kiss, correct? Yes. A bit further down the line, but which is one of my favorite all time songs, and and might possibly be my second favorite Prince song after Mountains. Actually, is my I just <laughs> love that song. Uh, but um, I remember when Kiss came out, and. It rocked, it, it rocked my world, frankly, because it was so elegant. And so I'm going to say this, I'm going to blow some smoke up your ass. It was because I didn't know you at the time, but I was blown away with the production and the, and the, and the way the sounds interlocked, the sound, the individual sounds of the, of the uh, 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 of the, uh, the individual rhythm sounds, the way they've been compressed, the way they've been equalized, the separation on on the different instruments, the simplicity, which is only only musicians will understand. Yes, the genius of the stripped downness of that track. Yeah. I know we did lots of other things like that, but that it, to me is like a piece of crystalline perfection. You know? Yeah. Well. Um, Tell me. It's, it's a lot of it is machine generated too. That's why it's so crystallized. It's yeah, a, yeah, yeah. And that I, that's an acoustic guitar playing that rhythm. Is it? Yeah. That the the underlying it? yeah. It's the, the underlying funky rhythm is just me open chord on an A. And and I'm triggering it to a hi-hat on the machine that I fuck with the rhythm of it and made a guide track with a hi-hat that just went it has no real pattern it's random it's wow. not it's not a rhythm you can learn it's a random wow. yeah but um that you know, rhythm, i spent a lot of time trying to figure out that's what it is which you know how you did that because it i couldn't figure it out at all it's a acoustic guitar through a keypex, which is a gate, right? And an external key 
The input was the hi-hat through a delay, which I kept turning the uh, source and in the delay unit, you can change between source and output. So it would change the rhythm as you turn the source and output in. And wow. it, it made a funkier rhythm than anybody could really play. But the machine did it. And I just I just played an open chord and the machine played my rhythm. That's quite a story, actually. Yeah, it was a, a scientific experiment, basically. Yes. I mean, I, you know, I, I, similarly to you, I grew up with craftwork as my basis. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I loved that kind of stuff. It was all synchronized and everything. But um, I just uh, interviewed uh, Wolfgang Fleur from Craftwork. Oh, yeah. He was telling it because he was the kind of rhythm guy for Kraftwerk. He he actually designed a lot of the electronic drums and stuff. And I said to him, "Do you realize that hip hop could not have existed oh, with your skill?" I mean, it's just, and he knew he knows it really, but it never really gets the credit it deserves. You know, no. I, I I I think um, I mean tra Trans Europe Express completely changed my life. Oh yeah, me too, me too. I love that song. And, um, uh, you know, between that and Gary Newman and all, I mean, I was a yeah. big, Prince was a big fan of those people, completely. Really? And, yeah. And, you know, we were in our own little isolated place, and we worshipped people from another isolated place. And there's <laughs> no, way, no way we could even socialize with Well, them. I assure you that we were worshipping the stuff that you guys were uh, <laughs> working on. Uh, uh, and actually, I, I'm very lucky. I got to work with... Um, uh, I got to work with one of Prince's protégés, Jill Jones. Oh, yeah. Um, in London, and we recorded three tracks. And... Uh, very generously, Prince allowed Jill to to um, record one of his un, uh, unreleased songs, a song called For Lust, uh, which I think has since come out on the Prince Vaults album, uh, one of them, you know, um, which, by the way, are brilliant. Uh, I mean, all those kind of things that never quite made the albums and songs that... Um, but that, that, anyway... Get back to the point. Kiss the stuff that you worked on before and after that. What, in my opinion, is the best and most interesting sounding stuff that he did in his career. I think so. I think so. I, I like to say I worked on the best Prince tracks. I think so. So you know. So what? What? what how did that? I mean, did you w work with him later in his career? When did that all come to an end? Did it uh, uh, let's see. Well, I, I was at Paisley Park till I think God, I can't. I guess I kind of got to say eighty, eighty-eight, maybe. Um, I just uh, I kept I I had a lot of clients that came up to Paisley Park. Right. Because of our work there, and they wanted to do that. I've done a lot of people up there. Ha ha, and uh, Big Head Todd and the Monsters, and the Bodines, and I mean, a lot of American groups, but yeah, yeah, yeah. 
and yeah, fine young cannibals who, i mean fine young cannibals they came yeah yeah and, i mean yeah. roland roland's uh, an acquaintance of mine and i've always loved the sound of that record yeah i mean what a fantastic mix that is i yeah. swear to god again i'm blowing smoke up your ass but it's one of my favorite sounding records i just think me too it's just crispy yeah, right. I like to, I like to put uh, every instrument in its, in its own space, which I I'm proud of because things have their own designated. It's like being an architect, kind of, and um, building it. But I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Roland was even happy with what we did because all three of those guys were such hippies that <laughs> I think the uh, the success blew their mind and they didn't really know how to live live after that they uh they weren't prepared for that they wanted to be an underground group mm. and um they were happy being an underground group and when that broke wide open i think they got kind of bent. It's a bit scared by the whole yeah, they got scared enormity of it i mean because that record I, I mean it was an enormous hit worldwide but it was big hit in america right oh yeah it was huge yeah, but yeah. I don't think that they couldn't get together to do another record after that. I mean, the original reason I got together with them was Roger Ames, who was. Yeah, I know Roger. Yeah, he was. He took me out to lunch in L.A. He said, I got this group that uh, they live in London and but they can't get together, even though they live in the same city. They have trouble physically getting uh... to finish their record. What happens if we ship them to Minnesota where there's nothing to do? <laughs> <laughs> what he said. And, well, it makes sense. Now that's to why he's head of AR, right? That's yeah. a clever idea. Yeah, it was brilliant. And they they got off the plane and they were the only ones with like skinheads, and everybody else in Minnesota looked totally different. And their minds were blown. They uh they had nothing. They had nothing better to do than to uh, record because we're stuck. Right. And it was kind of like going to the country to record. Wow. Um, so, um, I mean, Paisley Park, good Lord. For for people in Europe and, and people in the music industry in Britain, you know, it's like Asgard, you know, it's like <laughs> to us, it's like, I, I always in my mind just wondered it, to me it's like Motown really like an eighties Motown for me yeah uh, uh, and I've been to the uh, 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 I've been to the um, to the Motown studios and all that I'd love to go to Paisley Park one day is it still there still there. yeah it's still there they're giving tours it's right. a lot more it's a lot more modern than Motown ever was yeah 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 um, anyway I will do that one day. Um, so let me hold on. Let, look at my notes here. I mean, I you work with Etta James, right? What's that? You work with Etta James? Etta James? Oh, Etta James. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How was that? That was uh, an experience. It was great. I already had, li I moved to Nashville. So, um, like I said, after, after all these groups came to Paisley Park, in the wintertime, it started to die off after a few years. And I was now into the blues. I, uh, oh, right, right. I, I had a blues group I discovered that I thought was great. And I brought the tape down to uh, 
Memphis, there was a blues convention and uh, I ran into Gary Bells and Isaac Tigret, the guys that ran the House of Blues. Right. And I played them the tape. They thought it was great. They said, we're starting House of Blues Records. Will you move to Memphis? And I went, wow, that sounds great. I'll, yeah, I'll do it. Wow. I mean, much of the disruption of the rest of my life, I did. <laughs> but um, when I was in Memphis, um, I got a call from my friends at RCA, Patrick Clifford. It was A&R. And I had done Leo Kaki. I had done things for them before. And um, they knew my inclination was for R&B. And they said, how would you like to work with Eddie James? We can't finish this record. They, they don't know what to do. And they need help. So I went, yeah, shit, yeah, Eddie James, that's great. And um, I, I already I already had done John Mayle records. And right. uh, Right. They sort of knew I was into the blues. So uh, I, I said, well, give her my number. I'll be glad to talk to her. And I didn't hear from her for a month or two. And then one night the phone rang at 730. And I said, hello. She goes, this is David Z? I went, yeah. She goes, this is Eddie James. I went, oh, cool. <laughs> and then she goes, we don't need no motherfucking producer. <laughs> I went, what? <laughs> we don't need no one motherfucking producer. We don't want to sound like Prince. And I went, uh, I just wanted to help. I don't think everybody sounds like Prince that I work with. I mean, wow. it's just, just an impression she had. But um, I guess that must have been what they told her. But That's uh, quite an opening gambit. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We don't need you. <laughs> <laughs> so... Things settled down a little bit since then, and uh, I I got to at least talk to her civilly, and uh, she didn't have an attitude. Um, she didn't have one on, as they said. But uh, right, 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 right. Anyway, uh, I mixed her record, and it uh, turns out she got a Grammy, so things were good. There you go. There you go. So she did need a motherfucking producer. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> But her attitude was just so perfect. I mean, it was like the first thing out of her mouth. And I went, this is what I expected. Uh, that's a power That's a power play, though, isn't it? That's yeah. Like, oh, yeah. That's like, right. First of so, all. But I knew her reputation preceded her. And, uh, oh, did it? Okay. I was expecting something like that. Yeah, but you you seem to be a gentleman to me, so I bet you were quite <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I didn't argue with her. Let's put it no, that <laughs> Best not to argue, I think. Um, no. But you've done quite a lot of soundtrack work, haven't you, as well? I mean, you did... Uh, a little bit, yeah. I mean, you obviously worked on Purple Rain and Under Cherry Moon, correct? Yeah. Um, and uh, that that's no small thing. So Actually, actually yeah, it's pretty. I'm pretty proud of the Purple Rain soundtrack. It's like voted best soundtrack in the world. Fuck me, yes. I, I will go with that. And... Uh, yeah, I mean that had a significant effect on on us as well, um, and and you work with all sorts of people. I'm looking down the list here. I mean, what did you do with Alexander O'Neill? Say that again, Alexander O'Neill. Oh, uh, the only thing I did with Alexander O'Neill was my brother Bobby had a label, or he still does, 
and they uh, they did a live record with Alexander O'Neill at a it was a live performance. Right, right, right. And right. they turned it over to me to fix it. Uh, uh, you Mr. Fix It. You're a red. Well, I didn't record it. So oh, I see. I, I'm a little bit of a loss because I didn't know. I would I would have re recorded it differently. But right. Yeah, right. in other words, it's good. To, it was fun to jump in and fix it. And I had a tune and all kinds of things. And um, you worked with Nina Cherry, right? Yeah, Nina Cherry. We did. Uh, Red Hot and Blue was a uh, was a record that came out. It was an AIDS benefit record, right? And she did. You got me under my skin. She came up to Paisley Park, and we did the. Oh wow! And that was fun. She was cool. Nana right. is one of the nicest people. I'm friends with her. We come from a similar uh, background in London. I used to live in Notting Hill, where she, uh, I think she might still live there in London, and. Uh, all part of the same scene so we've known each other forever um and uh my friends banana army did some shit with oh, them oh yeah i was in <laughs> london i was uh they called me over because they had the other big group london has was finding cannibals so they called me over to try and do something with banana rama um i uh I had the mistaken notion of trying to get each girl to sing separately, which was really a dumb thing at my, in retrospect, I went, <laughs> why didn't I, why didn't I go with the flow and have them all sing yeah. in unison? Cause I that was the so. sound. And so. uh, I came over. It was so much fun though. I love those girls. Karen they, was, are, they are yeah. not dull. I'll tell you that. They, oh my God. I mean, we, we go on tour with them a lot with kind of eighties bills in the UK and, we have so much fun with them. They are just yeah. a hoot. Um, so let's get on to the real meat here of the entire interview. Lip sync. <laughs> Seriously, I love Funky Town. I don't know any anybody who doesn't love that record for the same reasons I was talking about Kiss. It's just got this... I mean, I do quite a lot of DJing of that period of music. Yeah. Play a lot of Prince, and obviously play. It has a lot of space. It sounds great in the nightclub. I mean, yeah. my God, it really does. It's a floor filler, you know. And um, yeah. well, we, uh, I took a lot of care in mixing for nightclub. We, when we were doing that record, that was like the first hit record I had. Is it? Right. Yeah. It was the first hit record I had out of Minneapolis. And it was this other friend of mine, Stevie Greenberg. He he invented it. He wrote it, and we did it piece by piece because it was only two of us. And I did a click track, and we were very obsessed with Donna Summer at the time. Yes, how, how skillful her records were, and how danceable her records were. And a Georgia Murders is a genius, right? So yeah, yeah. And but we didn't have a drum machine. Um, <laughs> We didn't. We we didn't even know how they did it. But um, what we did was I generated a click track, and we found four. Uh, he, Steve played the kick drum along with the click track, and we lined up four of the exact the ones that synced. And then I made a loop out of it. Went around the around the control room. Yeah. Between two machines, it was like eight feet of tape. 
And uh, we had a steady kick drum that we ran off a two track into one track of the 24. And um, it was steady. And then we did the same thing with the snare drum and found four that were exactly on. And then he played the hi-hat along with it. So right. we, we generated the beat electronically, basically, with acoustic instruments. We did something similar in... It's funny how people do similar things in different parts of the world and they come up with a similar solution. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we, we, we did the whole eight-foot tape, 12-foot tape loop stuff with stuff. And um, what is it? There's a very famous record that's got... Oh, I know where it is. Uh, the Bee Gees, right? Uh, I think it's Night Fever and a couple of other tracks from Saturday Night Fever have got is 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 a literal tape loop of the same. It's just a two bar loop of the funkiest sounding drums and they just couldn't improve on it so instead of getting somebody to impersonate it on another track they just use the same shit so i admire that it's it's very um daring to do it but um and then there's something about you're talking about doing this song in sections right and um and um Bucky town yeah did you yeah, do yeah. so and it really sounds like that, and I really like that. It doesn't sound like a a live band playing a track. It, it, what? The transitions don't don't sound like uh, organic transitions. They sound like it's a giant kind of machine playing acoustic sounds that's that's yeah. marching along, you know, which I love. And uh, yeah, it's kind of like an apartment building that. Gets built in <laughs> different sections. Yeah, but um, yeah, the, the, the guitar loops are, are, are they loops? I mean, they they sound very very super accurate and dang, get it that yeah, all that stuff. Oh, the, the ninth chord, we, I stole that from Junior Walker and the All Stars. Yes, that rings a bell. From Shotgun, that song. Shotgun, yeah, yeah, same same influence. God, I love that track. And the but, singers were great too. Oh, and the, and the vocoder, right? Vocoder, you know, that was an accident. Uh, I at the studio I was working at, my partner in my office was a guy named Roger Dumas. He dealt synthesizers, and right. um, he had just gotten this Bode vocoder, and it was uh, an ex you know we didn't know what, how to work it, and basically. Cynthia couldn't sing the intervals. I mean, I'm not saying she couldn't sing it, but it's a very hard interval for people to sing. It's quite a big stretch. And it's hard to get up there in time for the note. So we tried that for a couple of days, didn't work. And then Roger brought in, I had to bring in this bulk order. And we put her voice through that and played it on the keyboard. And it was a miracle. I mean, it, she, didn't, <laughs> she didn't like it. She argued with us, like, let me do it again. Let me do it again. We went, oh. but you don't get it. This is cool. Yeah, yeah. I but, mean, that's obviously, uh, as we all know, you know, Kraftwerk and George and Moroda were, it was, I mean, Vokoda was all over their records. Yeah. So it gave, it, it triggered that association as well, which is even Well, better. like I said, we're obsessed with Donna Summer. Yeah. 
Me so too. that's kind of why we thought, I guess. Okay, what's your favorite Donna Summer tune? Oh, I don't know. Love to Love Your Baby is great. Yeah, um, it's crazy good. Bad Girls is great. Oh, I perform Bad Girls with our band sometimes as a special treat. Yeah. Because uh, we got some super backing vocalists and they just knock it out of the park. And yeah, uh, I love that record. Oh, yeah, it's just a, a, a great thing. What always used to make me laugh, though, have you seen the Donna Summer documentary? No, I haven't. Yeah. You should watch it. It's really interesting. Um, she lived in Nashville while I was there. Is that right? Yeah. She, I, I saw, her at the, saw her at the grocery store. <laughs> she had a very odd life. I mean, I think she had a supreme talent, but I'm not sure she was the sharpest tool in the box, you know? I don't know. I think she was exploited a little bit. And uh, anyway, she got God as well later in her life. And then she kind of turned her back on all this kind of bumping and grinding stuff that she did with the uh, love to love. I'm going, you know, don't oh, regret man. stuff. You know, you, you do, you, you make a judgment call at a particular time and you do it and you do what you do. I mean, I feel love, a work of stone cold genius. You know, you yeah. don't turn your back on the meaning of that song. It, it's just beautiful. Anyway. Um, you know, Prince did the same thing. When he, joined, when he joined the, yeah, when he joined the Jehovah's Witnesses, he didn't want to swear anymore. So he, well, didn't, he didn't want to uh, talk dirty. Dirty. Why anymore. did he, why? Well, that's ridiculous because he talked. I know. <laughs> I know. Of all the things, <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah. So yeah, I saw another interview where he was saying that it could be quite uh, hard work in the studio. Is that right? He can, yeah, yeah. I I was lucky because I never, I never worked for him. I always worked alongside of him. Right. I, I was never technically an employee. I was a collaborator. Oh, I see. And so he left me alone. I mean, I'd get calls at five in the morning, but I wouldn't have to go. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, if I wanted to, I did. But he would. Uh, he was very hard on assistant engineers and his bandmates and very hard on people he would he would focus what he had the eye of soren on yeah certain things if he found somebody was doing something he didn't like he would stand over them and make them very nervous is that uh well it's obviously an integral part of his genius i suppose um, yeah, it was also uh, like you know I, i'm a big believer that you get the best out of people if you make them feel appreciated yeah well you know he he went back and forth but uh i think he had a lot of complexes about he didn't want people to use his name to get ahead where in conversely uh if he would have acknowledged people that helped him it might have been better i but think so. he didn't want to even do that i mean that's a that's an odd thing yeah it's an egotistical thing it's like it's all yeah, no not narcissistic as well and, yeah and all that stuff i took uh I, I did an interview with um dr fink and um uh, and uh it was quite interesting talking to him about you know he did a huge amount of touring with him right and uh about who uh, uh dr fink the the oh. King player oh matt fink uh, yeah matt fink yeah and uh and 
of course, you know, he's going to spent a long time working with him. And and, uh, I I got the sense that he felt like he didn't quite get the credit he deserved either. And, you know. That's what I was saying. I mean, Matt is a genius and he didn't, he didn't quite get any credit from Prince for doing what he was doing. Yeah, because he wanted to own the whole IP of everything, right? Yeah. So yeah. it was all, he's building a myth. Yeah, and he was, you know, he was confusing about a lot of things because he didn't want to admit it. Right. Uh, I mean, even on Kiss, where I I was promised producing and arranging and then when it came down to it, he couldn't give it up. I mean, I created that whole track for another group. Is that right? Maserati. Wow. You can go on. I'm sure you can hear the original back in on the Internet. But, wow. you know, he wouldn't give up any or his managers wouldn't give up somebody. But yeah, you know. it's probably more like that. It's a very interesting thing. I mean, I produced Terence Trent Darby's first album. And, um, you know, it was a very tight group. There was an engineer, Phil, uh, my friend Phil, and me and him. And it was like the three of us against the world. And it was just great. And, it well, it's live band as well, but making the record was the three of us. And it came to the putting the album out. And I get the album, I'm really excited, they're looking at it, and it's like, where's my credit? I mean, I produced the fucking thing, right? Yeah, yeah. you've been marginalised. Uh, yeah, and it said, it said, uh, the hard line according to was hardened by Martin Ware, and I'm going, what? No, actually, my contract, it says I'm entitled to a credit. And for years, a lot of people didn't know I produced that album. Yeah. Did they ever go back and correct it? No. no. But it doesn't matter because the people in the industry understand. I know. I, I have, I've had that happen to me a lot, not just with Prince, but with a lot of people. You don't get the – people get greedy about their credit. And yeah. not much you can do except say, well, I created that, so I'm ha- happy to be a part of it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's all you can do. I've got, yeah, a funny, like I've got a funny story about Prince, actually. Um, I was in the studio with, with um, uh, Terrence working on uh, working on one of the tracks, and we got this phone call, and somebody said, um, it's Prince's manager on the phone. I'm going, oh, and, and everybody thought somebody's taking the piss, right? So, yeah, I guess, and it said, no, no, it really is. Uh, Prince says that uh, could Terrence send all his demos to to him <laughs> why he was trying to claim credit for it no 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 he just wanted to hear them oh right. uh so he could see what he was up to and and terence said yeah he was a threat at the time yeah it was a, yeah, it was a threat at the time and uh terence said no that's not going to happen <laughs> yeah fun. um by the way, I need to tell you, uh, because you, you keep referring to, and I've seen it in other interviews as well, you talk about you, you regard building tracks as uh, have, having an analogy with uh, architecture and three-dimensional. I mean, I actually work in three-dimensional sound. Oh. I have a 
I have a company that creates 3D soundscapes. Atmos or something? Else? Uh, no, no, it's, it was, uh, I've been doing it for 20 years. It's um, Ambisonics. Oh. So uh, we've been doing it. You should have a look at my company uh, website, illustriouscompany.co.uk. I think you'll like it. Will you uh, send me a link? Yeah, yeah, I'll send you a link. That's right. Um, uh, and the reason I mention it is because if you ever fancy, uh, I can do you a 3D sound mix of anything you want, or you can do it yourself. I don't care either way. Or, you know, we can do it remotely. Or if you're ever in London, or if I'm ever in Minneapolis or whatever, I'd be more. Yeah, I'm in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, sorry, Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. Or actually, I do go to Los Angeles quite a lot. So, um, we should meet up. And, and in any case, it'd be lovely if you ever come to London. I would love to show you the system. And you would dig it because it literally is like building sound blocks in in air. Uh -huh. So it's a bit like Dolby Atmos, but much better. I acted as a consultant for Dolby Atmos, and they they ended up admitting our system was better. But they, did, wow. they, they just wanted to make sure that we weren't a commercial threat. <laughs> you know. Um, Anyway, thought I'd mention that. Um, and then you said you make and another quote from another interview said you you think you know what makes singles shine. I like that quote. So tell me what what you think are the main are the main uh, building blocks for making a single shine well it's a very nebulous uh term because i think a single will redefine itself i mean there are formulas that you can stay with uh verse chorus first chorus that kind of stuff but um i mean i've had a lot of people all kinds of theories like a minor minor verse and a major chorus always works and that that bad and you know there's there's all kinds of theories out there. I I don't profess to have any single way to do it. Not no pun intended, but um, I I like that things uh, change. There can be a song that's just one groove all the way through. Uh, I mean, look at uh, uh, Biggie, Biggie, Biggie. Can't you see? That's just the slowed down groove of Herb Alpert. Right. The song Shine. Yeah, and yeah. I put it in my drum machine, you slow it down, there it is. And you, you know, every once in a while hit that guitar chord. Da, 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 and that is the song. There's nothing else. It doesn't change. There's no chorus. There's right. no, I mean, the chorus is there, but it's just built on the same groove. So, yeah, yeah. There's really no concrete rule as to what makes a single. It's it's um, it's hard to define. I, that's why I like to. It's a constant challenge. They've got to come. They've got to come to the wellhead of genius. <laughs> yeah, they got to employ you, man. That's where it is. <laughs> yeah. Well, if I was a single spotter, I could get hired. I guess that would be great. Yeah. Exactly. Um, okay, we're nearly at the end. It's been enlightening and exciting and enjoyable for me. So hopefully yeah. it will, will be for everybody else. I mean, there's so much stuff that I haven't covered, but I'll mention it on the intro and outro when I, when I do that. Okay. Uh, 
<laughs> um, I mean, it's not meant to be a, a, a biography, you know, it's just, it's a kind of creative. Whatever. Um, but I always ask these simple questions at the end, um, uh, because I think it's quite, it's quite enlightening to, for people to know these things, even if they are a bit silly. So just the first thing that pops into your head, it's not, a, not an exam. Uh, what's your favorite film? My favorite film? Oh, boy. That there's too many of them. I mean, I love film, but uh, my favorite film is what my brother's working on. My brother's a film editor. Right. And, I read he, that. He, uh, I just saw Avatar Way of Water, which he did. Yeah. Oh, wow. He, that That's mind blowing. I mean, the first Avatar was really the mind blowing one. Yeah. But, yeah. I think so. But uh, I like that's a long doing. film, man. That's a lot of editing. Yeah, well, I I went out for some popcorn in the middle. <laughs> but, I mean, I like a lot of the stuff Steve does. My cousin Vinny was brilliant, I thought. He did that movie. And uh, as far as films go, uh, Rebel Without a Cause. Yeah. Like, Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. Wait, the, the, the film stock at that point is so be beautiful. Yeah. It's grainy. It's grainy. Like grainy and, yeah. oh. Juicy, juicy. Yeah. Um, do you have I, a favorite? I, I, <laughs> Sorry, carry on. I was. I like those kind of films. The uh, the gritty outsiders with uh, all those potential stars that you used, used to be yeah. in it. That's right. That's Love right. That Beautiful. Um, favorite book. Wow. Uh, one that you keep going back to, or. Reread occasionally. Well, I you know I I like textbooks for some reason. <laughs> you like nonfiction, right? I I I like nonfiction textbooks, but I I read short stories. The um, like Arthur C. Clarke science fiction. Yeah, story. I love, I love that. Uh, I'm a science fiction buff, so uh, me too. Yeah, any science foundation, not the big long ones, but the I like short stories for science fiction. I like J.G. Ballard's uh, short stories. I think they're exceptional. And um, I even like things like um, like uh, Lovecraft. I know it's not strictly science fiction, but no. like weird fantasy kind of stuff. I'm kind of interested. Right. And that film that came out not long ago, the what was it? Color Out of Space. I really like that film. What's the name? Color Out of Space. Do you know that film? I haven't seen it. Nicolas Cage. Oh, well, I haven't seen it. He's in 20 films a year, but, you know, it, it, you should watch that film because that is mind-blowing. Um, uh, based, on, based on an H.P. Lovecraft uh, story. So, Yeah, I like The Fifth Element. That was a cool movie. That was so... That was way ahead of its time, wasn't it, really? Yeah. And the way it incorporates yeah. fashion and... Yeah, that stuff was really cool. Yeah, um, I, I wanted that shirt he had. <laughs> <laughs> um, if you had had an alternative career apart from music, what do you think it might have been? Oh, I don't know, collection agent. <laughs> they make more money, right? Well, there's so many people in the music business that get screwed from other people that. I thought that would be a great uh, a great side gig to try and collect 
for studios, for producers, for musicians. That's a clever idea. There's nobody like that. That's right. Um, okay, which of your work are you most proud of? Well, I'm proud of the ones that break rules. I'm I'm proud of Kiss. I think that's just a monumentally cool, funky town. I'm proud of the the. Uh, there's a lot of records I do that I'm proud of that really don't necessarily get to be the at the top of the list. But um, I mean, I've done very cool recordings. With Aha, I thought was great. That was fun. Uh, Big Head Todd and the Monsters first record. I love that one. That was good. I don't know if that was in England or not. I, I, don't, I don't think uh, it, it reached England, to be honest. No. But I'll check it out, definitely. Sister Sweetly was the name of the record. I, think, I don't think it, it's an American record. Right, right, right. Okay. Um, so who is your favorite producer? Here's a good question. My favorite producer? Oh, my God. Well, there's Roy Thomas Baker, I think was fantastic. Very good. I love how he quadruple tracked everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that takes a lot of discipline. I, I know the guys from uh, the groups he produced are always complaining that they're in there for ages, <laughs> trying to get everything exactly perfect. Uh, Roy Thomas Baker is a big influence. Um, and I also think that uh, the minimalists are are a big influence. I love uh, Dave Cobb in Nashville. I think he does some great shit. And um, it's very minimal. Uh, really? Interesting. Interesting. Uh, okay. I run the gamut between, uh, you know, busy, all yeah, I'm uh, just interested in what pops into your head. You know, that's... Yeah. Um, what's your favorite drum machine? My favorite drum machine is... Uh, I had an SP-1200, which I really liked. I had one of those. And uh, I I did a lot of stuff on that. It was a great machine. Yeah, yeah. I, I had it backwards and forwards. That, the, uh, of course, the LM1 wind drum was a big part of my life. That's, for that's my favorite. And uh, I wish I still got mine, to be honest. I sold mine. I wish I hadn't. That and, uh, you know, the Lindrum 9000. Not as good, I don't think, but still good. Yeah, it was more, that's a derivative sort of sounding machine. Yeah. But the, the SP-12 was great. I made my own samples. Did you? Yeah. And um, that's what I liked about it. You could hit anything and make it a drum sample. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I went so far as to play cardboard boxes and they <laughs> you know, went for the kick drum and the you know, you yeah. can you can fuck with them so they sound more like a drum set. But if it was a cardboard box, it doesn't. It's got a certain texture. Yeah. I also like to uh, augment drum sounds like um, if I take a real kick and put a, a shoebox full of rocks on top of it and mic that, and you hit the kick and it goes <laughs> Got oh, a little wow. like an H three thousand vibe. Yeah, like, but it's a physical aftertale. It's yeah, yeah. Rocks rolling around. Oh, I'm going to try that. That sounds <laughs> great. Thank you for the tip. Sure. I mean, I've done I've done a lot of stuff like that. I, uh, with a snare drum, I'll take a, a, a blaster, a boombox, right, and turn it to a station that's not there, so it's just going. <laughs> 
yeah. and gate that to the snare drum and you can open up and close it so it goes right that's a little bit of what's on the fine young cannibal snare is it that's clever oh my god these are all golden secrets oh <laughs> great master <laughs> I mean, honestly no i love all that shit uh, that shit it's like my idea of heaven is to spend most of my time doing foley in the studio you know yeah. that's just great yeah that's i love to i love to augment the sound of drums and make them sound like their own personality that is a very strong and clear idea for people to 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 chase i think yeah because everybody's going to do it differently anyway yeah yeah that's great um final question um what's your favorite synthesizer oh that's a good one i mean i'm not a keyboard player so i'm not really qualified to say that oh you are it's just a matter of taste well i'm i i mean i've done recording on a uh i used to have a casio the cheapest fucking thing yeah yeah have. yeah and I got sounds out of that that uh, nobody else can copy because nobody get, has those $180, you know. Cassie. So was it a keyboard? Uh, was it a plastic keyboard kind of thing? It wasn't a VL tone, no? No, it was a plastic keyboard on its own stand, and you got it at an electronics store. <laughs> and uh, But it had sounds. I mean, the string sounds I used on a... Big Head Todd record were all from there, and and uh, nobody else could do it because they didn't have that cheap ass keyboard. <laughs> but unique sounds are what I was looking for. Absolutely. Well, all I can say is, David, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Anytime. I, I hope we get to meet sometime. And I would absolutely love to show you our 3d sound yeah i'd love to have an excuse to come to london yeah i miss uh i have to find some production work man they never yeah. pay the money anymore though do they i don't care as long as i get coffee with clotted cream <laughs> on that bombshell i think we'll uh, we'll leave it there thanks for your time i really appreciate it man. you're welcome David Z, what an incredible character. But at the core of everything he does is really innovation, and that's a lesson for us all, I think. Uh, I've certainly approached my career from that perspective as well. And he's made some of my favorite records. And his influences are very similar as well. I hope you enjoyed that. I really enjoyed it. But then, you know, he's um, made some of my favorite records. Hope everyone's well. Feel free to email me, electronicallymartin at gmail.com. Or if you're feeling generous, patreon.com stroke electronicallyhours to help support this podcast, keep it independent, and so I can pay the people who help me make it. Almost breaks even at the moment, but not quite. Uh, and it'd be nice if I could just cover everybody's costs. That'd be great. I don't want anything. I don't want anything for it. I enjoy doing it. Anyway. Another great guest for you next week. Hope you enjoyed this. I certainly did. Bye.
Um, this is from Michael Westcombe. Hi, Martin. Had a bit of a drop-off with listening to your podcast, so I'm catching up again. Just heard you read my letter after the Steve Hillage chat. Thanks so much. It came out of nowhere. Fantastic. I am in shock. It got me listening to his Motivation Radio album, which I had on vinyl way back around 1980. I've not heard it since that time. Really great. It was the guitar sound I do remember. The track Searching for the Spark is incredible. Getting, uh, getting him on your show was inspired. Very interesting to hear his musical journey. He's, he's got one of the most interesting musical journeys. Plus, did he get Bill Nelson? You did. Plus, plus you did get Bill Nelson. Amazing, two parts. I'm a big fan of the Fripp, Nelson and Hillage spectrum. Mm. My dream would be to get Bob Fripp on. Um, and... Um, I'd love to do that. He's my favourite guitarist of all time. He's a legend. Anyway, that's Mike from Istanbul. Thank you. Thank you, Mike. Um, This is from John Walker. Martin, I'll try to keep this brief. On a school trip to Hamburg, Germany in February 1982, as a 15-year-old, my mates and I played Penthouse and Pavement non-stop on our Walkmans. Needless to say, huge Heaven 17 fan ever since. I grew up in Stockport and went to uni in Leeds, Always been a huge music fan, huge Man City fan too, and fond memories of Main Road and occasional shitty away days in the doldrums of Division 2 and 3. I now know you are a Wednesday in Liverpool fan. Sorry about last weekend. When was this sent? 9th of April. Yeah, it could pick a a weekend. (laughs) Yeah, go on. I moved to the USA in the early 90s and finally got to see you live 40 years later at the Park West in Chicago last autumn you sounded great and glenn interacted with the crowd so well it was a great night thank you anyway i found your podcast fucking love it can't believe you have over 100 episodes and i just found it three months ago i would love to hear jk on that's your a good show, idea i love that who's jk um it's um uh, jamiroquai oh yeah that'd be awesome I've um, always been a, a. It's like my. I don't know if it's a guilty pleasure, but I've, it's always been great. a guilty pleasure. I just think musically they're really good. Yeah. And he's such a great singer. Yeah. Um, um, if you ever play Chicago, you're welcome to a home cooked meal in a leafy suburb north of the oh, city. That's oh, nice. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. 